Chapter 8 As Kingfishers Catch Fire Clarice Starling liked puzzles. When she was young, she'd liked mazes, or so her father used to tell her. Liked finding her way out of a sticky situation. Solve the unsolved. Dad called her his little magpie, always looking for the shiny solutions. After he died, she'd like to try and solve more than just puzzles. Life had become the tall-sided maze. As a teenager in the orphanage, she kept to herself. The other Omega girls didn't like her outgoing and inquisitive nature. The betas and alphas resented her showing off, as they called it. She liked to say it wasn't showing off. It was just simple logic. She liked mystery novels. She liked watching whodunits and guessing the culprit before the first act was over. She liked seeing chaos turn to order. She liked seeing the bad guys behind bars. She liked imagining her dad would come back through that door with his arms open and a smile and a, Sorry, little bird. I was late. Solving puzzles kept her hoping when she was young. As she grew older, she allowed herself to understand that no matter how many puzzles she solved and people she helped, she could never bring him back. But she could still put the bad guys behind bars. She liked to think he'd be proud of her. Double major in psychology and criminology. Summers as a counselor in mental health centers. But sometimes, life became solving and solving and feeling like a lamed bird in a maze unable to find the exit. And then Drac Crawford, the alpha with charisma of a sad Labrador. She'd been picked from her colleagues to attend the UVA conference. And at first she'd been amazed they'd let Crawford up to speak. The man clearly was not a natural orator. But she listened, because she wasn't rude enough to get up and leave mid-seminar, and she liked what she heard. And she came back the next year. Then she started tracking down his seminars. When she applied for the FBI training program and was accepted, it felt as if, suddenly, she was close to something resembling a goal. And she'd felt accomplished and driven, and people started to make sense again, like she thought they might have when she was little and things were easy. And then, Lecter. Dr. Hannibal Lecter and his intense and yet utterly disregarding stares. His devastating intelligence. His host of victims still to be found. His terrible mind and his ability to be entirely and completely normal despite his situation. And she'd felt intrigued by the puzzle of it. The why and the what for and the how. And Crawford had liked that they'd built a report, to an extent. And Starling had liked that Crawford had liked it. And of course, she'd heard because everyone had heard, of Lecter's infamous capture and trial and the slew of psychologists that had taken a crack at him and come away bemused and slightly ill. Yet things seemed to have rocketed off without her, and her training was over, and now it was all for real. And then, Will Graham.
When it came to people, she tended to treat them the same way she treated puzzles, as something with a solution. Her southern upbringing had pummeled politeness into her system until she found it difficult to be little else to strangers. Her Omega makeup further consolidated her personality into an unassuming, smiling, nice girl. She didn't mind if that's how she was taken at first glance. It was useful for people to apply their own stereotypes. It allowed her to study them without suspicion and slip under their radar. But with Will Graham, she'd found her usual techniques fell by the wayside. It had been difficult not to judge him before they'd met. He was something of a legend, famous or infamous, depending on who you talked to. Sometimes she thought she talked to him as if she'd known him for years rather than days. An old, estranged friend. Other times she spoke to him with strained patience. Other times she wished he'd let her help him, because he damn well looked like he needed it. She liked to think their like physiology had a little to do with that, although she was less averse to admitting it than Graham appeared to be. He hadn't been what she'd expected. Of course, all of Quantico knew of Graham, Crawford's golden boy, the man who brought down the Minnesota Shrike, the angel maker, who saw where others feared to look, nearly driven mad by the job, the one who'd gotten away, only to get got, the man who'd had his life ripped down the middle, torn open and left to die, and it showed day by day. Oh, it showed. Will looked like the stitches were coming apart and the slow bleed had become a hemorrhage. Truthfully, she was beginning to wonder how long he had until he bled out. Her love of puzzles gelled with his inscrutability. Will Graham was a puzzle, in a similar and yet intrinsically different fashion to Hannibal Lecter. Graham forced himself to be an enigma as a defense. Lecter was so by nature. As such, Clarice felt she was more likely to get through to Graham, even though she felt that Lecter would be a better advisor. Yet, bizarrely... She felt Graham may be more dangerous to deal with. The traumatized were always unpredictable, because they knew they could survive. She felt she understood that better than most. Nothing was to be lost. All was to be gained. As she stood in the doorway to the small kitchen in the Washington safe house and looked in at the scene there, she knew her assessment was correct. Will Graham sat in the corner on the floor, his daughter, Eleanor, between his outstretched legs as she poured water from a milk jug into an empty mug. "'Do you want milk, Charlotte?' Eleanor asked in an affected, stilted voice. "'There you are!' Graham's eyes were a thousand miles away, even as he stared down at her. But she could see the hollowness there. His hands rested against her sides as the little girl played tea party with an imaginary friend, pressed not too tightly, but tightly enough that the wounds showed." For a strange moment, she felt as if she was interrupting something private. Need me for something? he asked. Clarice took a moment to answer, considering Graham hadn't taken his eyes from Eleanor. Jack sent me to remind you Lowndes is due in Nut 4, she said calmly. Going to escort me to the premises? Do I need to? Maybe. He didn't smile, instead frowning as Eleanor spilt the water when she stirred haphazardly with the teaspoon. Hey, Ellie, careful with that. Sorry, Eleanor said absently, as if by rote. Do you want me to give you a ride in? Clarice asked. Graham looked ready to stay put and make good on his threat. Yeah, he nodded eventually, giving his daughter a quick squeeze. Okay, honey, I've got to go. No! Eleanor whined as she turned, straining to reach for her father as she stood. No, I don't want you to go! 
I have to. I won't be long, I promise. No! <gasps> Ellie bit out an acoustic almost sob, her face crumpling as she stood up on wobbly legs, trotting after him. Daddy, what? Wait! Ellie, be a good girl for me, okay? Graham looked like he was about to snap or break down. One of the two. Please, I have to go to work. I'll come back and tuck you in. The crying started, long and low wails and tears down rosy cheeks, and Graham stopped, stock still. Starling wished she could simply leave without seeming completely heartless. When Eleanor wrapped her arms around his leg, Graham rubbed roughly at his face, leaving his hand over his mouth and his eyes closed. Could you give me a minute? he asked, as he dropped his hand, his eyes never going further than her shoulder. Sure. Graham had lifted the distraught child into his arms and taken her upstairs. Clarice wondered, as she waited downstairs, whether he knew she could hear them talking on the landing above. The words were muffled but recognizable, even beneath Eleanor's constant weeping. Jeffrey Milo sounded taut and fractious, like a man who'd spent the last so many weeks watching everyone around him do exactly the opposite of what they should. Will, by contrast, sounded exhausted, resigned. She contemplated stepping outside, but decided it would perhaps be better to keep tabs on Graham as much as possible. You can't, Milo was saying. This is crazy. Can't you see her upsetting her? I know. I know, all right. She's tired, that's all. She needs some sleep and she'll be fine. No, Will. It's not fine. It's not going to be fine. The sound of a door opening. This is, I swear, Will, this Crawford is setting you up for. No one's setting me up, Will replied. I said I'd do it. Daddy, I won't go with you. Ellie, please, not now. Jeff, it'll work out. Are you fucking mad? Clarice thought the question was legitimate, despite being entirely irrelevant. Not in front of Ellie. Will sounded harsh. Don't use her as an excuse, you hypocrite. Crawford wants to. God. So he gets you in the papers, and you get to be the one with the target painted on your back? What if? We can't work in what ifs. We don't have the time to work in what ifs. What the hell is that supposed to mean, huh? Daddy! Ellie, for God's sakes, not now. Will sounded like he'd already snapped, shifting back to Milo. I can't tell you. It's an ongoing case. Oh, bullshit. Jeff, for God's sakes. Bullshit. You know what? Sometimes I think you want to be fucking miserable. You know that? You love being so low that no one can pull you back out. And now you want everyone else to be just like you. Just as miserable as you. A pause. Then. I've got to go. Yeah, you do that. Milo grated out. You fucking do that. Clarice thought it a disservice to pretend she hadn't heard everything. She waited by the door and didn't flinch when Graham walked down the stairs and straight past her, out into the overcast morning. They drove in silence, though sometimes she caught him from the corner of her eye, staring out the window as if to look for something he wished were there, but he knew could never be. It was cold, and it was raining and it was far too late at night to still be on the clock. Of course, it was always too late at night to still be working, but Will never switched off during a case, especially not a case like this one. Olmstead was a special display from a special artist. He liked to think that his colleagues were the same, 
that they would have the capacity to see past the sheer horror of the chisel stabbed through his sternum, or be able to marvel at the brutality of the cat bar run through his thigh at a just-so-angle. Yet he had a funny feeling they didn't, that they went home to their families, and fed their pets, and talked to their kids, and tried their best to separate terror from reality. And he was left staring at the warm glow window from the cold outside. Will didn't mind. Not too much. He liked the cold. Yet that very thought made this visit all the more an uneasy compromise. He was used to working mainly under his own initiative, but now he felt as if he'd been forced to accept the interloper on his territory. Dr. Lecter's practical affability made him an easy target for Will's frustration. The man was personable to an extent, though Will found it difficult to see past the pitfalls in this personality. The parts Will knew would turn his stomach more than most. He was clearly an elitist with a superiority complex and an indefinable air of haughty danger that Will couldn't pin down. All he knew was the man put the hairs on the back of his neck on end, and so far, Will wasn't sure if that was a good thing or not. The indefinable, the enigma, the strange tug at his gut that Lecter stirred in him, was a barb beneath the skin. His impeccable manners juxtaposed to his wonderfully dark sense of humor. His seeming love of social gatherings, and yet his inexplicable disinterest in most of the people he encountered. The only thing standing in the way of digging deeper, understanding Lecter's motivations, was the one thing he needed above all else. Which had led to this ludicrous situation. Will could feel the nervous itch at the back of his neck. Withdrawal from the suppressants had left him twitchy, irritated and paranoid. He needed to believe it would be worth it because he was not only without his barrier, but truly vulnerable in this state, sensitive and fractious. He just hoped it would allow him to find the last piece of the puzzle, if there was one to find. What he had found was that Lecter had treated Olmstead. It was old, and it was obscure, but his own recent trip to the hospital had inspired him. He'd requested Olmstead's archival medical records. Finding a minor surgery for a workshop-related injury was the first step. The next was to track down the surgeon who'd operated on Olmstead. When he contacted the name on the form, she had no memory of it. Considering she was an ER surgeon, Will hadn't been surprised until she'd looked up the records. Then Lecter's name had slunk from the corner, the surgeon explaining that Lecter had covered her shift, but the records hadn't been changed. Will had felt as if he were being followed by the man's shadow. And now, he was here. Will hitched up his jacket over his head as he hurried from his car up the wide, stone steps to the front door. The lights were on in the lower rooms. Will hoped he wasn't overstepping the boundaries as he rang the doorbell. So far, he'd only ever visited Lecter's downtown office with his ostentatious library. Turning up at the man's home was a different story. Dr. Lecter answered the door in a plain white shirt and dark trousers seeming incongruous next to his usual caustically patterned double-breasted suits or his green surgeon's scrub. Mr. Graham, he said, eyes alight with subtle victory that Will knew he shouldn't appreciate. To what do I owe the pleasure? I... For a moment, Will blanked. That gaze lingered on him, tight and warm. Something was different. Something was wrong. I thought I told you not to call me that. It's Will or nothing. Will, of course. Hannibal smiled. Forgive me. No, it's fine. I... What are you doing, Graham? He asked himself. Dear God, what are you doing? I actually had something I wanted to ask you. 
about the case. Just something I thought you could clear up for me. Of course. Come in. Lecter stood back and held the door. I shall fetch you a towel. Really, I'm fine, Will said, smiling in a twitchy manner as he entered. He stiffened as Lecter stepped behind him and took his coat. I, uh, thanks. His shoes were leaving wet prints on the immaculate wooden floor. He felt instantly out of place, both physically and mentally. The house was lit to a level appropriate for an evening dinner. It felt candlelit, despite the electric lights. Enough that shadows seemed to flicker. There was a smell of coriander and fresh lemon on the air. It reminded Will of home, long ago with his father preparing the bass they'd caught in the river. Fresh herbs and lemon and the tang of salt. And beneath it all, the inescapable scent of cold spice musk on hot skin. Lecter's scent had only ever been a tickle at the back of his throat before, like a mouthful of choked-upon smoke leaving a bitter aftertaste. Now it felt drawn down into the lungs, seeping out into his system. The baseless beauty of that one hot hit straight from the brain to the crotch. For an awkward moment, Will felt as if he were sixteen again. It turned out it wasn't a feeling that could be blinked away, no matter how hard he tried. It was just about... He stalled, swallowing. Get out, get out, get out, half of him screamed, while the other half pleaded, stay. Stay. Fucking stay where you are. I mean, I found something. About Olmstead. Thought you might remember treating him. Treating him as a patient? Lecter took a deep breath and looked down to his left. No. He returned his gaze to Will. I am afraid not. Was this through an admission to the ER? Yes. Two years ago. I see. Time is a slippery one. I have lost that moment to it. But... He paused, a soft frown upon his brow. I hope you do not mind me saying, but you look unwell. I'm fine. Will tried to smile, but it slid to a grimace. That was all I really wanted to... No. Look, I'd better get going. Nonsense. You have arrived at a fortuitous time. Dinner would surely be bereft without you. I know that I will be. The fiery mess in his stomach flared as Lecter caught and held his eyes. Eating alone is such a waste. I will set you a plate. Can't. Will said the word so quickly that it seemed fired from a gun. Lecter watched him oddly. The smell was cloying. Stronger. Beat upon beat against his resistance. I mean, I, uh, really need to get home, and... So... His mind felt mushy, unwilling. He couldn't think straight. It had been so long since he'd started taking the antifodine. Days and months and years of being sandbanked from the unpredictable floodwaters of mindless desire. And now that he'd stopped, the waters were gushing over. I insist. Perhaps a full stomach may jog my memory. Maroon. Will had never noticed quite what a severe shade of maroon Lecter's eyes were. They seemed to glow in the low light. He thought he might be sweating, beating at the top of his spine. God, you just go check on the food already? It took a few seconds for Will to realize his mouth had moved with the thought. Speaking to people on a daily basis was one of Will's greatest contentions. Now he felt as if he had three left feet, and one of them was a permanent fixture in his throat. He wanted to apologize, say he was sorry and leave, but instead he stood, deer in the headlights, and watched. Lecter did not react. If you would like to wait a moment, he said neutrally, 
making Will feel like a jabbering mess next to his immaculate calm. I must check on dinner. Sure, Will said awkwardly, shifting on his feet, hands on his hips. I'll just... here? He cleared his throat when Lecter inclined his head. <clears throat> right. Christ, he thought as Lecter left. Get a hold of yourself. Will felt exposed in the hallway, too near to the door not to just turn and leave. To his right, before the stairs, a door sat ajar. Will chose it arbitrarily and walked in without compunction. Inside he found a tall room, dark in its excessive mahogany, and with its long bookshelves filled with leather-bound volumes. Keep focus, he thought. Keep focus. You're here for work, he thought, as he walked towards a desk in the middle of the room. Upon it rested a halogen lamp, which gave the room its light. The sparse illumination made the room seem cave-like as if the ceiling were an indefinable distance away. Will felt small and resented it. Reaching out, he ran his palms over the cool, smooth varnish of the desktop. The space was a study in OCD. Will focused on it, trying to find a derisive humor in the perfect angles of books to corners of tables, of pens lined up with the paper, of the lamp at a perfect 45 degrees to the inkwell. Before the ornately carved chair, Will found a leather folder, flipped closed. At its closest end, he could see an incongruous cream corner poking free. It blared like a lamplight on a midnight moorland. In this pristine room, the corner of paper was a butterfly of chaos. It was impossible not to reach out and lift the folder open. Or it would have been if a hand had not clamped down upon his shoulder, causing him to start backwards, colliding with a solid chest. Hips bumping hips. And Will gasped, and the feeling was that of falling down from a height as he turned, hands reaching backwards, to grab at the desk as Hannibal Lecter steadied him, fingers against both sides, barely a foot between them. Forgive me for startling you. He was sure they would have been Lecter's next words if Will hadn't taken the glaring opportunity to lean forward and kiss his lips closed. He wished his rabid sense of want and need were utterly to blame as he opened his mouth and accepted the intensity. He wished it weren't all a thin veneer, beneath which his true feelings had been expertly hidden. He wished he could admit how much he wanted this, instead of believing it all a lie of his biology. They pressed closer. Will was sure that sound of wanton need he could hear had come from his own throat. They consumed each other as a fire devours wood and turns coal to ash. When they broke apart, Will found himself staring into those maroon eyes, now red pinpricks in the low light. Hannibal caressed his cheek with a reverent hand. The plain sense of it, he murmured. Without reflection, it becomes a mirror. What did you say? Will asked, realizing his breathing was ragged. I think you have helped me solve something complex, Lecter said. With something utterly simple. The hand at his face slipped to his neck, and Will found himself tipping to expose the flesh. May I? If you have to ask. Will had murmured, watching through eyes almost closed. Crowded against the desk, all hands and scent and instinct overwhelming his clawing need to run, Will Graham felt himself blindly concede defeat without any way to stop it. Dr. Alana Bloom found it difficult to scheme towards hurt. Without taking her studies to that of the medicine of the body, she still felt that the Hippocratic Oath applied to the medicine of the mind. The last great frontier was inside. She had seen enough of the human psyche to know that there was no end to its desires, 
its wants, its needs, and its capacity for depravity. The id could concoct far worse devilry than any physical torture. The cure was an enigma, if it even existed. Treating the sick was a gift, not a tool. The thought of using her training to cause mental distress rather than healing, it was unconscionable. And yet, this time it was to do good. That was how it was being sold to her, like a door-to-door -door salesman hawking useless wares, profiling the tooth fairy and finding all the little weak spots where pressure and time had worn thin the fragile membrane. Bad things for bad people. It didn't sit right, and she knew why. I need your help with this. Crawford stated it like a man hanging at the end of a rope. I'm not sure you know what you're asking. Advice. That's what I'm asking. You want to what? Alana asked. Push this guy towards some sort of self-destructive behavior? He's shown no signs of it so far. He's determined. He's careful. He's driven. I doubt suicide is on his agenda. Regardless, if that's what you wanted, I wouldn't help you. I know. And just for your information, I know. Jack looked as if he might protest. He folded quickly under Alana's steady stare. Christ, that's just great. Graham's been talking to you? The delightful Agent Starling thought it best I'd be informed, Alana said with a wry smile, her eyes hard. I have a feeling she'll go far, if you don't hold her back. She shook her head and folded her arms. I swear to God, Jack, you just don't get it, do you? Will's fooled you again. I don't like what you're insinuating. Jack said tightly. He's fooled you into thinking he's strong enough, that he's capable, that he can weather through, that this time will be different, that this time he won't be left a mute wreck with eyes unable to see the good in the world. Do you know what Will's main drive is, Jack? He wants to catch this guy, just like we all do. Wrong, Alana said, sitting back in her chair. It's fear, Jack. Will deals with a huge amount of fear every day. Jack looked as if he were about to scoff but held back on it. Because of Lecter? Partly. You can't have any understanding of what that did to him. Even I don't know the full extent of the damage. I don't think I'd even dare to. But I can tell one thing for sure. He's alone, Jack. Utterly alone. That's how he sees himself. There's no one else there in his world except him and his little girl. And he's there for her, not the other way around. You're putting all this strain on him, and he's got no one propping him up. Like hell. He's got that guy he brought from the Keys. His neighbor. Jack said, waving Alana's concerns away. I'm not judging, and I don't really give a shit how married he is. Will's not alone. It must be nice, living in a world where things are so easy to understand. Hey, I don't need your sarcasm. You're trying to tell me he's afraid? We're all afraid. Hell, I feel like I should be the one walking outside in a Kevlar vest most of my days. It's not just... Alana bit down on the frustration leaking into her tone. She took a deep breath, closed her eyes in a long blink, and tried to think of a simple and logical plan of attack. Will had made it clear on several occasions that he didn't want help, especially not psychological. The last thing he wanted was someone poking around his damaged goods. He'd been sensitive enough about it before he'd met Hannibal. Now, well, the damage in that department was, in her eyes irrevocable. As far as she was concerned, they were lucky Will was able to trust them at all. Hell, she thought. I avoided being in a room alone with him for months after we first met, because I knew he'd pick up on me analyzing him. Knew he'd bring the shutters down. He's sharp. 
too sharp for his own good sometimes. It took a year to get past that, to let him learn to trust that I was there for him, not for my prowess in the journals. Alana didn't know how to explain that to Jack. The man was practical and arrogant, and, despite being a first-rate behavioral analyst, he didn't seem to be able to resist using the tools at his disposal if he thought it would get results. Alana didn't want Will to turn into a pawn. It's not conventional fear. She started basic. Will's disorder is centered in empathy. It plays on the most vulnerable parts of his personality, and his echopraxia doesn't help. Neither does his eidetic memory. He sees inside the minds of these killers, and, if we don't watch out, he might not find his way back out again. You know how bad it got before. We nearly lost him to Hobbes. You know, sometimes I think it was blind luck we managed to lead him back up out of that particular rabbit hole. Imagination is a large part of fear, and Mill has enough imagination for all of us, and he's already lived through the worst situations he could imagine, through his job, surviving Lecter, with his children. I don't think anything is too far-fetched for him now. The worst-case scenario will have become his world. It's all he'll be able to see. And now... Alana leaned forwards. You're asking him to be the bait. Worst of all, you knew he'd say yes, because, deep down, he needs to save everyone. You're using him, Jack. Crawford didn't have a comeback. You're going to wind up this maniac and let him go, even though you know he's fixed his sights on Will. You're going to get burned, Jack. And the worst part is, it's not you who will take the fall. For God's sake, he has a child. What's going to happen to her if, God forbid, anything goes wrong? Lots of people are dead, Doctor, Jack said. We just want to make sure the Tooth Fairy doesn't get his feet sticky on the 25th. Then you set yourself up as the target, Alana said coldly, standing when she realized she stood no chance of changing his mind. Maybe then I'll believe your conviction. Till then, don't bother asking for my opinion, since you seem adamant to ignore it. As she reached the door, pulling it open, she couldn't stop herself from turning back. If anything happens to him, Jack, I swear to God. Alana held his stare. I wouldn't want to be you. I really wouldn't. In the background, a clock chimed two. Hannibal Lecter, sitting cross-legged in a wing-backed armchair before a cold fireplace in the West Wing's first sitting room, put down his copy of Cicero's In Verum and stood to his full height. The room did not change about him. High vaulted ceilings with cherubs clustered in the cornicing, holding small flutes and staring down as if to whisper secrets. He knew his way to the door. A thousand rooms, miles of corridors. Hundreds of facts attached to each object, furnishing each room. A pleasant respite awaiting him whenever he chose to retire there. Hannibal Lecter's palace was vast, even by medieval standards. Translated to the tangible world, it would rival the top Capi palace in Istanbul for size and complexity. He passed from the western wing into the great hall of the seasons. The palace was built according to the rules discovered by Simonides of Sios. It was airy high-ceilinged, furnished with objects and tableau that were vivid, striking, sometimes shocking and absurd, and often beautiful. The displays were well-spaced and well-lit, like those of a great museum, but the walls were not the neutral colors of museum walls. Like Giotto, Lecter had frescoed the walls of his mind. Outside, on the open balcony, the sunlight was streaming in, 
The ceiling was lofty and run through with pristine archways. The pillars along the balcony cast shadows upon him as he walked. His collections flitted past him in a myriad of happy accidents. The sunlight reminded him of Verona, 83. Up popped the stilted bronze of the Castle Vicchio Museum's prized Juliette. He could have her speaking Moliger if he wished, but today he chose only to look. In her arms she carried a small bundle of cloth, like an infant's wrap. And then, on the air like a harp's melody, could be caught the laughter of children. Peering down over the balcony's edge allowed a large courtyard to build itself accordingly. You shouldn't, he thought. It does no good. Futility, he thought, was the enemy of peace. Yet the draw was magnetic. He found it impossible to resist once the thought took him. Descending to the grass was as simple as taking the stairwell behind him, along which were a series of paintings. St. Francis feeding a moth, to a starling, leading to Caravaggio's decapitated Medusa with her mouth open in a fearful cry, leading to Achilles and Patroclus, embraced in death, leading to the door he should not open. When he reached the closed door at the bottom step, Hannibal Lecter wished to imagine he could feel the warmth of sunlight upon his bare arms as he stepped out. There was a perfumed scent of gardenias on the air. Insects buzzed. He could remember their many trips to Patterson Park. Will would sneeze at the pollen. They would take the red, cross-stitched picnic blanket Will had bought at a thrift store, laying on his back and seeing the sky above. Of course, there were parts he was forced to improvise. Two small girls, no more than three, one with her hair in curls, the other with her long, straight locks and braids, cheeks rosy, bedecked in matching yellow dresses. They tumbled about the lawn, as he had seen children do, chasing each other, squealing, laughing. Hannibal stepped out and took his place upon the blanket. The play began. Where have you been? He looked up as Will approached, the dark blue shirt he'd bought for him while they courted, over the faded jeans he insisted on wearing, his feet bare. I was looking all over for you. Did you find the bread? Hmm. Will nodded, sitting down beside him the brush of a warm body next to his, the familiar scent. I left it in the back seat, though I don't think they like us feeding the swans. Might need to do it on the sly. I'm sure we will find a way, Hannibal said, looking over to the girls. Charlotte, play nicely with your sister. The girls continued to tumble and run and smile, with no heed for him. He turned at a touch against his arm. Will was lying back against the soft, red cotton. Hannibal joined him. They lay side by side, staring up at the sky. The pull, a need to care for the man next to him, to let him want and need for nothing, to keep him close for as long as he could stand it. His memories dug deeper. Do you think they'll be more like me, or more like you? Our child. Will had asked it not long after they'd first tried for a child and failed. He had been melancholy in those months. I hope for the best of both, would you not? I don't know. Hannibal imagined staring at him. Will's profile was Grecian. Curling hair over his chiseled features. His curved lips. Face unlined and free of cares. Sometimes, Hannibal had wondered how the beautiful creature had managed to fool the world. And, to an extent, fool Hannibal himself. Sometimes, I hope they won't be anything like me at all. I would hate to imagine why. Would it be fair of me to say I love you for your mind? Flatterer. Will smiled. Beautiful. So very beautiful. 
though I cannot complain about the body it is attached to. For crying out loud. He was laughing now, sweet and low, eyes crinkled attractively, their fingers tangled. I have been waiting for you. He remembered saying it, not long after he had proposed, in his aunt's garden as Dwell sat and sipped water with ice, stiff and unhappy, despite his repose in a lawn chair. Though I fear the need you break in me, I have been waiting for you. The memory was too close, too thickly lined with a few days prior. He should not have pushed so far. When Will turned to look at him, his gray eyes were hard, unforgiving. His face was set, older, worried and drawn. He wore a dark gray suit jacket over a light blue shirt. Hannibal could smell the ship on the bottle. The sound of children had fallen absent. You haven't been waiting for this moment, Will said through a strained smile that left his eyes cold. You goddamn liar. The familiar view above him flipped from one to another. The roof of his cell could not rival the pale blue of a summer's day, scraped with thin clouds like pulled cotton wool, populated by swift birds and bumbling butterflies. He wished to close his eyes once more and drift, yet there was a voice speaking to him. Lecter? It was Chilton. He could hear the strain in the man's voice as he spoke from beyond the bars, as if he'd been trying to catch his attention for many minutes. When you're quite ready. It really was too simple to play with Chilton. Sometimes it amused him. Most of the time he felt like a cat toying with a terrified fly, lifting his paw only to mercilessly bat down again and again at its tattered wings. He relented, lifting his right arm and rolling his hand. He could imagine Chilton's tight lips and fuming anger at the airy gesture. He did not dine to look. "'I need you on your feet,' Chilton said, when Lecter eventually pushed up onto his elbows and looked over his shoulder— he was greeted by the cleaning crew. The orderly stood in a neat row, boxes in their hands. Lecter was surprised it had taken so long for the entourage to arrive. He did not speak. He would not grovel to the likes of a low-rent psychologist and his cronies. He went through the steps, one by one, hands through the bars, cuffs on, collar tight, watching as they tore down his drawings, boxed up his books, tore the clay in its thick wrapping— the finished figurine he'd molded carelessly shoved in with the rest. I had hoped we wouldn't need to go through this again. Chilton stood in the middle of the room and surveyed the destruction happening around him. But you just keep disappointing me. Is that your decision? I decide your punitive measures here, Chilton said abrasively. Of course, Hannibal said. This is not the sort of thing Will Graham would request. Of course it is always a pleasure to know you equate your dear nurse's disfigurement with a harmless phone call, Frederick. You could think of nothing more inventive than taking my books. Well, they frown on sleep deprivation and hard labor these days. Chilton smiled, though Hannibal could tell it was only partly sincere. So we'll have to settle for your own personal little escapes. I see dear Will did not take you up on your offer. He enjoyed seeing Chilton stiffen, unable to hide the reaction. Yes, he did not. You must understand how I feel. How crass. Your analogies need work. Are we done, Greg? Chilton asked the stocky Texan orderly, carrying the heavy box of books in his hands with ease. Yes, sir. Then I'll leave you to your thoughts, Chilton said to Hannibal as a parting shot. Lecter smiled at the now bare wall as he heard the door close and lock, felt the collar loosen and disappear, the cuffs undone. 
Chilton would never know how potent and utterly liberating his thoughts could be. He closed his eyes. The church was lofty and cold. Winter was no time to be among the pews. Yet he had chosen it for its thematic significance, rather than its creature comforts. The body sat where he had put it, in the third set, three rows up, three spaces in. A perfect trinity. Gordon Humber, owner of the awful, tactless, and utterly odious new bookstore, which had bought out and replaced the wonderful independent shop, which had sat in its place for years. Not only had the little old Polish woman who owned it always found him the most obscure titles at no extra charge, she had made an espresso the Italians would envy. Humber had been most rude when Hannibal had asked whether he would mind helping him track down a copy of a 1629 King James Bible. There had been a particularly ironic amendment by the scribe to Corinthians 11, which he wished to own. Standing over the man, Lecter lifted the Bible from the shelf before him, his lips lifting fondly as he opened the beautifully gilt leather bindings to find the dear red tongue holding open the verse. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Beneath the high, beautifully painted dome of the church, and in the diminutive, white, barren cell in the Baltimore State Asylum for the Criminally Insane, Hannibal Lecter laughed through curled-up lips at the inadequacy of the human language to capture the essence of the divine. When it came to it, Will knew he'd surprised Bloom and Crawford both. He appeared willing to meet Lowndes halfway, his expression affable beneath his cold, gray eyes. The interview went without a hitch, mainly, Will thought, because of his continued insistence that it take place at J.E.H. and not downtown. Even Freddy seemed willing to behave herself. Will knew she could probably sense his camouflaged animosity for twenty paces, but she did a good job of plastering a smile over it and moving on. He had balked only twice. The first had been when Freddy had switched from asking him what she should put down about the faked artist's depiction of the tooth fairy to asking for intimate details of the Leeds murder, focusing disturbingly on Miss Leeds. They'd taken a break when Jack had picked up on Will's icy calm. Holding it together? How much longer is this going to take? Will had asked as he drank a lukewarm coffee. Just some more photos. We were thinking of Wellington Street. There's an empty flat there. Make it look like you've rented it out. I'll hide away. It'll give him something to focus on. Sure, Will had said. Okay, let's get back to it. The second had almost made Jack start forward to break up a fight that didn't happen. As soon as Eleanor's name had trapsized from Lowne's mouth, Crawford had been on his feet, hovering nearby. Will sat across from her, elbows on his knees, and smiled. You got everything in that bag, Lowndes? He asked, nodding to her bulging mailbag. All your tickets from today? She watched him carefully, a slight frown in place even as her eyes were challenging. Because if you mention her name again, I'm going to take it and its contents to the parking lot and set the whole affair on fire. Next question. Jeez, Graham, she'd said, rolling her eyes. You're so overdramatic. The article was done and dusted by nine o'clock. They'd driven home every trick in the book. Will hoped it was enough and that the tooth fairy would be mad enough to buy it. He'd made statements no investigator would ever make and no straight newspaper would ever credit. He'd speculated that the tooth fairy was ugly, impotent with persons of the opposite sex, falsely claimed that he sexually molested his male victims, 
that he was doubtless the laughingstock of his acquaintances and the product of an incestuous home. The key shot had been the last thing they'd done. Taken in his Washington hideaway, the apartment Crawford had rented out, and Lowndes had called the place he'd borrowed until he squashed the ferry. The photograph had showed him in a bathrobe at a desk, studying late into the night, poring over a grotesque artist's interpretation of the ferry. Behind him, a slice of the Capitol Dome could be seen through the window. In the lower left-hand corner, a blurred but readable sign of a popular motel across the street. The Toothberry could find his apartment if he wanted to, and Graham wanted him to, was surprised at the visceral need for him to. Part of him wondered if the fairy was thinking about him while he thought about the fairy. He'd shaken his head and scratched at his neck. It was starting to get worse. He didn't want it to go any further. Will felt the relief of going back to his hotel room, akin to a prisoner fleeing a torture chamber. Returning to the safe house would have made his life infinitely better, but he and Jack had both agreed that the smaller the risk factor in this operation, the better. He wouldn't put Eleanor and Jeff in harm's way. He couldn't even consider it. Yet, you'll do it to yourself? His conscience jibed. Will wanted to ignore the stab, yet it sounded too much like Milo to disregard. He didn't want to think about the things that didn't work. But the minibar worked, much to his detriment, and his phone still got signal, even though he was sure he'd be better cut off from the world for a while. And he opened the first miniature and downed it without much thought for why he shouldn't, and he called the number before he thought about why he was doing it, or why it would be a bad idea, or who he wished he could hear just to have the voice soothing his aching, heavy nerves. Hey, he said as he lay back on the bed, phone held in the crook of his ear, as he undid a second bottle of bourbon. The Jack Daniels was already gone, and the Jim Beam was in his hands. Hey, Jeff sighed in reply. All done? And dusted. Really think this is gonna work? We're keeping an eye on it. Just need to wait and see. Yeah, I guess. Look, about earlier, I... No, I'm sorry. Will jumped in, the alcohol making him quick to leap on the apology. I wasn't going to apologize. Oh, okay. Earlier on, I meant what I said. Right. Will said quietly. Uh-huh. She cried for an hour, Will. She was asking for you until she went to sleep, fucking exhausted from crying her damn eyes out. And I'm here trying to make her feel better when my kid is miles away. My kid, Will. You think this is easy for me? Do you? Can you even see further than the edge of this case you're on? Huh? Please don't do this now, Will sighed. You're hurting her. Jeff did not mince his words, and Will flinched. Is that what you want? Of course it damn well isn't. Then man up, Jeff said tightly, and start being straight with me or I can't... I can't stay, all right? Jeff? Will knew he sounded frightened. No, don't do that. Just... Just tell me, okay? Tell me. What? Why you lied to me? What? Lied to you? What the hell are you talking about? Freddie Lowndes called me. She what? Will knew he sounded dangerous, because there was a pause. Jeff, how'd she even get your damn number? Don't know. Reporters have their ways, I suppose. Jesus. Will blinked away the black spots in his vision. Did you? Did you speak to her? Uh-huh. I nearly hung up a few times, but... Yeah. Why the hell did you... He snapped his mouth shut, swallowing. What did she want? She was fishing for stuff on you. No, 
he said quickly. Before you ask, I didn't tell her anything. As if I would. Still. Think she ended up giving me more than I gave her. Whatever she told you, don't believe it, okay? Freddy likes embellishing the truth. She told me there was never a divorce. Will ground his lips between his teeth. His eyes hurt. He thought it might be the start of a headache, but regardless, his eyes hurt. When he focused harder, he thought everything might be starting to hurt. What? She told me you're still married. What the hell has that got to do with anything? God, he heard Jeff say, as if to himself, followed by a sad, soft, aborted laugh. <laughs> then she wasn't yanking my chain? Jeff, are you for real? Milo asked, sounding fed up and spoiling for a fight. After everything you ever told me about what he did to you, and the first thing you did wasn't to get a divorce from that psycho? It's not that simple. Oh, yeah, I think it might be, sweetheart. Susan was quick enough to drop that bombshell on me. She asked for a divorce. I guess that's what happens when you find out your husband is fucking another guy. Shit. Will rubbed at his eyes. I thought you said it wasn't because of... He stalled, hating the guilt that nipped at him. How did she... We weren't exactly discreet. Jeff sounded cut up. That's what I deserve for getting us drunk and screwing in the house. Tony must have seen something. He told her. God, I don't know. Something I couldn't exactly get out of. Get out of? God, that came out wrong. No, I don't think it did, Will said coldly. I just meant this is going to make everything a lot harder. And who the hell are you to talk? When were you going to tell me all this? Or were you ever? That you're still hitched to a serial killer, and you don't seem in any hurry to change that. He's the reason you lost Ellie in the first place, Will, goddammit! She told you that, huh? Will felt his fingers tighten around the phone. Why'd you lie to me? Jeff sounded sad, and Will hated it. Did you think I wouldn't help you out if I knew? I wasn't crazy, okay? I was just... just... psychotic? Postnatal psychosis doesn't mean I was psychotic. Will bit out. You told me you were depressed. Jesus, Will. She told me. She told me what you were like. Hallucinating. Hurting yourself. And you just fucking believed her? Will snarled down the phone. Is it true? It's not that simple. Is it true? What does it matter if it was? I got through it, and that's what fucking matters. I got through it. Oh. You mean when you tried to drown yourself? Jeff asked bluntly. Is that the got-through-it-that-you're-talking-about? You don't know, Will said, toxic with resentment. You son of a bitch, why would you? You're fucking married to him! Jeff managed not to shout, yet the force of the words was still noticeable. And you seem pretty determined to stay tied to all that poisonous crap in your past. I remember, Will. The anger seemed to give way to the hurt, and Will curled in on himself. I remember when you filled the glass with rum and watched those photographs melt away. And you promised yourself something you obviously couldn't keep. It's not. Do you still love him? No. Will knew he'd hesitated too long. The thought made him feel ill. Fuck, Jeff said breathily. I'm beginning to feel like a sucker here. You know that? Jeff, please, just let me. I'd rather you didn't. The line rang dead. Will lay on the bed, staring at the ceiling. It seemed to shift, shadows flickering like those cast by firelight. 
He closed his eyes and felt gravity shift in his mind's eye. He thought he heard words from long ago. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Crying what I do is me. For that I came. Hannibal's voice, heard as from just over his shoulder. A doomed fool, he thought. That's what you are. Moth to a flame. The once burnt, twice shy, try again guy. Don't you get it? Don't you? The just man justices, and all else falls to the wayside. When Will forced himself to sit up, the walls decided to get in on the action, twisting to and fro. The bottle was empty when he upended it. He grabbed for another, careless of the label. It was clear and sweet, but with a bitter aftertaste. Soon, it was gone too. As tumbled over rim and roundy wells, he heard, face twisting. Stones ring. Everything in this world had its place, and he knew his even as he loathed it. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. Will felt himself drawing his hand over the juvet. He sat down with a heavy bounce. I remember you read to me, he muttered. Will lay back and curled up on his side, eyes stinging. Read to me some more. Shall I tell you a story? He wondered how long it would take Jeff to pack up and leave. For a moment, Will thought he hated him, then remembered that he cared about him a great deal, and that only made the pain all the sharper. He couldn't leave Ellie alone. He couldn't. But he had to. He had to stop the fairy leading the goblins downhill to eat up families whole in their beds. Tell me a story, he implied softly, to send me to sleep. Let me tell you a story, dearest. Let me take you far from here. The next hour passed in a haze. Will went from bottle to bottle until all that were left were the small glass shells filled with nothing but dregs, and Hannibal's voice went with him. I won't be long, I promise. No! <laughs> Hi, Luna. Were you worried because I was crying? Because I was crying? No! <laughs> Luna, I'm trying to record. I'm trying to record. It's okay, I'm not actually crying. No! <laughs> Are you just gonna keep doing that? <laughs> Though I cannot complain about the body it is attached to. <laughs> Luna, Luna, Luna. Luna, do you also like Will Graham? <laughs>